Well, good morning and welcome again to church. And it really is good to be here with you guys. Can you give me macro number four, please? Um, I want to welcome online Jasper County Jail Campus, DeMott Wheatfield. It is good. Hebron. Oh my goodness, Hebron. It's good to be here with you. And I love Palm Sunday. I love getting to see the kids walk across our stage, remembering the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And uh, just a reminder, this service is going to be real talk about kids, and um, I would be open with my kids hearing this message, but I want to give you the opportunity to go into kids' ministry. And our kids really are precious. Uh, God has been blessing our churches. This last Sunday, we had our highest non-holiday attendance ever. And uh, in Hebron alone, we had 143 kids, which is really cool. We're proud of that campus. And, uh, you know, it's kind of cool to think that across our churches and services, our enrollment in kids' ministry is very similar to the enrollment at Wheatfield Elementary. And I'm just so moved by the next generation that God has entrusted us with. They're the future of our church. They are our legacy. And as we wrap up our legacy series... Um, we've talked about a legacy of commitment and a legacy of generosity, but this week I want to talk about a legacy in the next generation, a legacy in our kids. And growing up, I think all of us assume that our childhood is normal. We believe that our parents are the best. And then we start to grow up and we start to look at our childhoods from the perspective of adolescence and 20-year-olds, and we're like, that was messed up, right? That was crazy. And then we have kids of our own, and all of a sudden we're like, how did my parents put up with me? Mom, please help. I'm dying. I had a childhood that seemed pretty normal to me at the time, but I had a mother and father who I now recognize were not normal at all. They were extraordinary. They were raised Buddhists and atheists, respectively, and they had a clear understanding of the cost, pain, and evil and disenchantment that's associated with those religious systems. They were intently focused on raising sons who had a legacy of faith in Jesus. Often, I would ask them as a child about being corrected. You know, I'd be like, why? You know, God is love. Why are you disciplining me? Whatever. And I remember in our 1994 Dodge Caravan, my dad giving me this lecture on the way to church, and he quoted Proverbs 13, verse 24. It says, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children, and those who love their children care enough to discipline them. And I was like, I don't like the Bible. Um, you know, in hindsight, I'm so grateful that my parents loved me enough to do something they were uncomfortable with and that they didn't want to do, which was to discipline me. I like Proverbs 22:15. They would read this one to me too a lot. It says, a youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it away. And I know that that is a controversial passage. The Bible does endorse physical discipline of children, but never out of anger, always from a place of love, never um, to leave a bruise and always on the soft part of the bottom. But Proverbs 29, 15, it says, um, to discipline a child produces wisdom, but a mother is disgraced by an undisciplined child. You know, as a parent, I have definitely been disgraced when I've fallen behind in discipline. Uh, we go to Costco, and I remember one day, my children were just choosing to act like complete hooligans and drug addicts, going absolutely crazy, and uh, everybody from church was there. It was like a church reunion. I was like, you guys, this is the sound of me winning. My children screaming is the sound of me not giving in to them. But um, I began to realize as my dad would quote Bible at me that two can play that game. And I found this verse in my Bible, Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. And I was like, dad, do you see this verse? And my dad immediately was like, that's not the end of the verse. And I was like, darn, I hate how well he knows the Bible. You know, he's like, what's the right? And what we used to do at dinner is we would each quote a Bible verse going around the table. And the first one, um, or the last one to be able to quote a verse that no one else had quoted won the game, you know? So we were big into Bible memory. But he would say, what's the rest of it? And I was like, darn it, rather bring them up uh, with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And he was like, aha, 
Will do. I love that verse. I was like, ah. Now, I was a pretty rough kid. I did require a lot of um, rod not being spared. And uh, my parents, they, they really didn't have a ton of rules. They were very, very loving. Um, and I always knew I was deeply loved. I mean, they, they, were, they were not angry. They were not like, punch the world back hard. No, that, that wasn't them at all. Super, super loving, very, very kind and compassionate. But they were hard on the rules that they did have. And their biggest rule was curfew as a teen. And uh, my junior and senior year, they extended it to a little bit later than it had been. I had to be home at 8 o'clock on weeknights and 10 p.m. on the weekends. And uh, they wisely knew at that time that nothing good happens late. And because I was home at that time, I missed out on a lot of the back three quarters of movies. I saw the first quarter of so many different movies. Um, but I also missed out on a lot of bad things that went down, and I'm grateful for that in hindsight. But uh, to enforce that rule, they were very serious about it. We were grounded a day for each minute we were late. Two, two minutes equal two days. And uh, no phone, no friends, no TV, no internet, and no pleasure reading. And uh, right at the end of my junior year, I was 32 minutes late coming home. I had a friend who was giving me a ride home, and he ended up getting hung up and whatever. And he wasn't in a hurry, but I was in a big hurry. And I was like, Dad, it's not my fault, whatever. And he goes, look, no excuses. I don't care if it was this or that. I don't care if it was traffic. You need to plan better. And he said, John, I want you to know I'm preparing you now while the consequences are low so that you don't have to learn when you have a mortgage and the consequences are high and you lose your job. And now because of that discipline, I can actually manage my schedule and time super well. And what he was doing was he was training me to visualize logistics. And uh, it was a really great life lesson. I'm almost never late for anything. I've never been disciplined at a job for being late. But at the start of that summer, being grounded for a month was devastating. And all I could do, you know, because I, I missed schoolwork. I was like, I wish I had homework or something. All I could do was work out and read my Bible. And I got in great shape. And then I just started doing chores around the house. You know, the gutters were clean. The laundry was done. All of it. I was just so bored. And um, finally, you know, I was reading my Bible like six days in. And I came across this tasty little lick right here. I was reading my Bible. It says, parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. And I was like, amen. And I went to my dad. I said, dad, I feel like the Lord has laid this verse on my heart for you. And I want you to read this and pray over it. And my dad actually looked at me and he goes, you know what, your mother and I have actually been reading that same passage. And um, you know, it's not gonna happen every time, but uh, we're gonna let you off after finishing the day tomorrow. And uh, I was just so grateful for that grace. And uh, my mother and father were brilliant parents. They understood that God had a calling on them. You know what, they weren't able to know everything that was gonna happen, but they had a clear guiding star, a really great vision for what they wanted to do for us kids. And the passage that really guided them in almost every situation was Proverbs 22 and verse six. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And the key word here for them is train. You see, train is more than just telling your kid something. You know, training is not like, don't do this, do that. Training is three things to me. It's preparation, practice, and protection. And today what I want to do is show you three major thoughts on training our kids. And even if you don't have kids or your kids are grown, we all have young people to influence. And I think a lot of us, you know, we look at the world and we just cluck it. You know, what's happening? Oh, it's just so bad and terrible and whatever. Look, if you want to build a legacy in the world, the kids are the future. And I think the next generation needs help. Even if you're not a Christian, the wisdom we'll talk about today, I think you'll really like. And the place I want to start is, I think most parents focus too much on protection and not enough on preparation and practice. You know, the big key in our passage is that we train up a child in the way they should go, and it, then their life is up to them. You know, the, the child is like an arrow in the father's hands. We let go of it. We release it. And it's our job to target it, but once it's gone, it's on its own. A kid's life is up to them. We want to train them to make the right choices once we've released them. 
And the trick to doing that is you need a balance of all three of these things. And I think a lot of parents really struggle with preparation and practice. You see, preparation requires a vision to see what's going to happen in the future. And practice means you have to let your kids fail, go through hard work and pain. My dad was a big believer in training. And one of the big things he wanted my brother and, uh, and me to be able to handle was, was crisis. I remember we grew up on a lake that was three miles across, and dad would talk to us about what we would do if we fell through the ice. You know, this is what you do, whatever. And I was in first grade, and you know, if you fall through the ice, this is how you're going to handle it, whatever. And one day he goes, hey, go out on the ice, you know. You can go out and play and whatever else. And my brother and me were on the ice. He was in the sunroom. I know he was watching us, but, you know, I fell through the ice. And he'd already talked to us, you know, the fireman's crawl and the stick and the whatever else. And I know he was watching me break back in, you know, boom, 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 into the house, you know, crying and whatever. I did the walk of shame with my boots full of water in Minnesota, you know, get inside. <laughs> and my dad said, what did you learn? Well, I learned about risk assessment. And to this day, both my brother and me have been really good risk assessors. We're able to analyze risk in different situations and we're able to handle ourselves in crises because my dad was willing to prepare us and allow us to practice handling different crises. And you know, in an unorthodox way, he was also giving us protection. Now, to be clear, the water was like waist deep and he was there ready to watch us and help us. But when I was in first grade too, we um, had a big sledding hill by our house. And uh, my brother uh, would go with me sledding on this hill. And there was a big giant oak tree at the bottom of the hill. It was about 200 years old. It was a red oak tree. And uh, it was right in the middle of the hill. And dad said, I'm gonna let you guys go out. You're in first grade now, John, but you need to make sure you watch out for that tree. It's a huge hazard. Well, to the surprise of no one, we nailed that tree. Now, um, both my parents were watching in the sunroom and, and they remember us hitting that tree. I hit that tree so hard with my head, I saw stars. You know, I used to think the Bugs Bunny like stars thing was, was not real. It, it's real. You know, some of you had rung your bell really hard. I hit it. And it was the first time I ever knocked the wind out of myself. You ever remember the first time you did that? Like you thought you were dying? Like, ah, you know, it's just so scary. And um, my mom wanted to go get us, but dad was like, no, wait, 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 let him learn, let him learn, you know. And so we come inside, you know, crying, whatever. And they loved us. They were so kind. You know, they calmed us down everything else. But my dad asked his big question. What did he ask? What did you learn? And I was like, well, I learned that gravity is a harsh mistress. But um, <laughs> you know what he said to me? And I still remember it to this day. He said, John, imagine instead of being on a sled going five to 10 miles an hour, you were in a car going 50 miles an hour. And because of that lesson, I never played car games when I got my driver's license. All my friends, you know, racing 100 miles an hour, this and that, you know. Um, I didn't play chicken. None. I mean, sure, I'd buy an auction car and mess around in a farm field. But like on the road, we never played the car games. And what my dad was doing was he was protecting us in the future by preparing and allowing us to practice then. You see, our job is to train our kids, not only protect them. My dad doesn't remember this one, but this was, I think, one of my favorite parenting lessons of all time. I had a coach, um, my first year of cross-country running, I was in ninth grade, and in front of the whole team, he said some racial slurs to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Vietnamese, I'm Japanese, but um, he said to me, you're a slanty-eyed, you know. And um, I told my parents um, what he had said. And they gave me some sympathy, but then my dad said, John, don't give your power away. You don't give, you need to forgive him and be better than the generalization that he's made about you. And uh, dad told me that he probably, this man probably fought in Vietnam and the most traumatic moments of his life happened from people that looked like me. And he said, John, you can be a part of bringing him healing. I want you to be kind. And you know what I did? And it worked. And that coach and I became great friends. He was my favorite coach during my high school experience. Today, I am a parent and I'm only just learning the discipline that it took my parents not to run in and protect. You know, they could have run to the superintendent and been like, you know, can you believe that? I mean, I can't imagine how hard it must have been to not want to run in and protect. But my dad knew 
that I was going to face a lifetime of whatever it was that society wanted to throw at me. And he said, you know, I can't just protect him now. I need to train him, prepare, and practice. I need to show him how to act. You know, I'm so glad that they taught me in that moment. They trained me that I'm not a victim, that I can always control how I act and not to give my power away. They trained me about the power and freedom that comes from forgiveness. You know, that coach's ignorant comments could have been the defining negative event of my high school experience. Could have gone in there and started a crusade and talked to the school board and talked to the superintendent and gotten that coach fired and can you believe and he did and whatever. But instead, it became the defining positive event in my life. I learned that forgiveness is my portal to freedom, that grace is better than justice and that love heals. How often as a parent, how often as grandparents do we run in and protect, forgetting about practice and prepare? This is what I tell parents all the time with our kids. It can be easy now and hard later or it can be hard now and easy later. I'm so glad that my parents gave me hard now so that we could have easy later. We have great lives. You know, um, another way to put this, I think, is uh, teach them to play. Don't play for them. You know, why do we have our kids play sports? It's because it affords them the opportunities to deal with failure and loss and to handle conflict, to handle anxiety, and to handle emotionally, emotionally intense situations. As a side benefit, we learn some motor skills. But how many of us are 45 and we're like, man, I'm so glad I know how to play soccer. You know, I'm so glad. I just use those skills every day, all the time. No, it's not about the soccer. It's about the skills we learn besides that. You know, it would be totally inappropriate if you have a 15-year-old or a 12-year-old and you're talking to the coach instead of commissioning your kid to do it. It would be totally inappropriate if you ran onto the field because some defender was playing too intensely with your daughter and you gave that defender the people's elbow. Like that, what are you doing? Like you don't do that. You don't run on the field. Yet this is the kind of thing I see parents wanting to do all the time. And yet God commissions us wisely to train up a child in the way they should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You see, you can't train your kid to handle the issues when you handle the issues for them. Training means prepare, practice, and protect. It's all of it. And if we want to build a legacy in our children, we've got to get training, not just protecting. It's all of it. I'd ask you right now before we move to our next point, which one of these are you best at? Are you balanced with all three of these? I think a lot of times as parents, it's easy to get focused in on one of these, and it's easy to love ourselves so much that we're not willing to put ourselves in the uncomfortable situation of allowing, allowing our kids to face difficult situations when the consequences are low. The second point I want to talk about is um, training our kids for godly sex and relationships. Nothing is derailing the legacy of faith that we want more quickly than a failure to train our kids in this area. It's so interesting to me that parents are so protective in so many areas, but in some of the most intimate and sensitive areas of life, we are silent. Yet this is an area where if we say nothing or very little, society is constantly inundating our children with messages that are contrary to God's plan for our life. You know, many of you have heard about a controversial bill in Florida um, that the religion of secularism has titled the Don't Say Gay Bill. And this bill just blows my mind. I think it's a very reasonable bill talking about not indoctrinating kindergartners, first graders, and second graders about trans, gay, straight, um, sexual ideology. It's interesting to me, you know, telling a kindergartner to discover their sexual orientation without parental input is borderline pedophilia to me. I mean, that is my realm to talk to my children about. That is not the school's realm. That is not a publicly funded school's job. And you don't need to be religious to recognize that advocating for irreversible hormone treatments for minors without parental consent or knowledge is wrong. That is wrong. And yet this is stuff that is being advocated for by the religion of secularism. 
The Bible is specifically responsible as a matter of historical fact for ending the widespread practice of pedophilia and child sex abuse. Before the teachings of Jesus, this was not even considered not okay. And seeing the secular world try to bring this back is no surprise as the teachings of Jesus recede. The only reason we value our kids in this area is because of, because of Jesus. And as I watch the religion of secularism try to indoctrinate and violate our children, I'm reminded how important it is that we protect, prepare, and train. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? See, what this is saying is, you know, sin is, or sex is a unique sin among all the sins. He's not saying it's worse. He's saying the damage is, you, is unique. See, I think secular society says sex is just a physical transaction, but God has always taught us that there is a spiritual component to this. There's a spiritual aspect of sex. You know, we know there's a big difference between a slap in the face and a sexual grope. If Will Smith had groped Chris Rock, even though physically it would have been less damaging, it would have been a far bigger deal because there is something spiritual about the sexual. And God says that sexual sin specifically and uniquely diminishes the presence of God in your life. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we sin sexually, we are removing, pushing, diminishing the presence of God from our life. When it comes to kids, I think that training them about God's plan for sexuality is super important. We realized really early with our kids that we would not be able to protect them completely from what the secular world says and thinks about sex. So we said, we need to start, prepare, uh, start preparing for that. And so uh, when they were really young, like literally two years old, we started reading two specific books in our house that I highly recommend. The first one is called God Made All of Me, a book to help children protect their bodies. And uh, this has been a great book. And then the other book we do is uh, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Junior. And there's actually a second version that we've started doing with our kids too. But I love this book with my kids. Um, we practice. We train all the time. I say, what do you do if you see a bad picture? Turn and look away and tell an adult, you know? And uh, what's a bad picture? A picture that shows a private part. My son loves this one. What are the private parts? He just loves that. It's like his favorite thing. <laughs> Let me tell you, I love these words. Okay, but... Um, you know what's amazing is I have four kids. My youngest is four years old. And uh, all four of them at different times have approached us saying, Daddy, I've seen a bad picture. And, you know, I never would have caught that. I never would have heard about it had we not done this. You know, had we not had this conver with, conversation with them starting at two years old. That's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to me. But so, so important. You know, in my ministry career, I've had dozens. I, I mean, like conservatively, probably over 24 conversations that go something like this. And I shared this story before, but um, this is just a, an amalgamation of dozens of conversations I've had. I'll have a parent call me saying, hey, my child is exhibiting, exhibiting uh, sexually risky behavior, you know, what, whatever it is, um, you know, struggle with their orientation, struggle with being attracted to like non-human things, whatever it is, right? And it's just, I've never, what do, you, what do you do, right? And I say, well, how long has your child been looking at pornography? And they'll say, oh, we don't allow that in our house. You know, definitely we're on it. You know, we, we um, work with them and we monitor their phones and whatever else. Okay, um, let me talk with your kid. So I'll talk with the kid, you know, and I'll meet with the kid. I'll say, hey, how long have you been looking at porn? They'll say, well, I used to do that, but I don't do it anymore. And I'll say, okay, well, when did you stop? Pastor, I haven't looked at porn in like two weeks. I'm like, good for you. I'm proud of you for stopping. When did you start? And for boys, the average age of exposure is eight to 10 years old, eight to 10 years old. And that's today, that's getting younger. And I, you know, I've had boys say, I started when I was six. I'll say, how often did you look? They'll say, every day. Every day, I found this point to access it and I looked every day for 30 minutes, whatever. You know, you think about the trauma 
that would occur in a child's life from being exposed to that every day. You know, I don't see a big difference between a screen or real life. If, if, if that stuff was acted out, you know, on the other side of a room and every day this kid was exposed to that stuff. If you think that a, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old is going to grow up with a healthy perspective of their body and what um, sexual, um, what, what, what that looks like in their life, it's going to be not going to happen. There's going to be a lot of psychological morbidity that accompanies that trauma and that child is going to need help. Especially for boys who are visual, this is a big deal. But for girls, too, the average age of exposure to pornography is now 11 years for girls. And I think what we don't understand is our youngest generations, that's specifically Gen Z, people who were born um, at a time when they, know, they, they, they weren't alive when September 11th happened or they can't remember it. That's what defines um, Gen Z. Um, but that generation grew up exposed to a level of, of Internet that we just can't imagine. And, and their childhood was different than we can conceptualize. There's a lady on our staff. Um, her name is Aubrey Toppin. And she was born in 2001, so she's part of Gen Z. And uh, she looks at me the other day, and I said, hey, you know, I'm turning 37 this month. And she goes, Pastor, I just forget how old you are. And I was like, me too, you know. <laughs> but um, anyway, she has a passion for this, and, you know, she leads in Next Gen and talks about the hurt all the time that, you know, she encounters there. And she says, hey, um, I would love to have my story be a part of this, and I think it'd be really helpful. And so um, she shared some of what her story was like, just as a typical kid. She was not atypical. She was a better-than-average student, you know, led prayer groups at her school, and, you know, she had a very, very typical Gen Z childhood. I want you to go ahead and play that video. Okay, so obviously turning it from myself to myself is different, but I asked Aubrey, who's our communications director, to, to come and help share some stuff with us. How long have you been at this church? I've been at this church my whole life. I was baptized here, did my profession here. Before that, my dad grew up here, and before that, his dad grew up here as well. So I think that makes me the fifth generation yeah. to be a part of First Church. And my nephew actually makes number six. I grew up in a great family, truthfully. I had two parents who loved each other very much, who loved my sisters and I very much, who loved the Lord and who sought to, to give us a childhood that was really, I think in their best way, centered around um, raising us up to be people who love Jesus. And I went to the Christian school. I did church every weekend. I was, I was the Christian school kid, textbook. Yeah. And one thing that I think people who are millennial and younger had is um, parents who, I think they just weren't aware of what technology could do for us. But um, how old were you when you got your first mobile device? What was it? Talk about that. I was 11 years old, I was in fifth grade, and I was at the latter end of my peer group actually to get um, an iPod Touch is what I had originally. Yeah, yeah, and so you got that, and I'm sure your parents tried to like regulate it some, rules, whatever else, um, but uh, how quickly did you get involved in illicit messed up stuff on there? Honestly, I don't really remember a time when I wasn't in something messed up on my on my iPod Touch, and unfortunately, it wasn't like I, I got it and I immediately went searching for trouble. Yeah. Trouble found me. Um, I got a popular social messaging app that all of my peers were using, and from there, it just unfolded into kind of this trashy place to be, really. There were strangers who found my account who were sending me explicit photos of themselves. And as a, as a young girl, I was just flabbergasted. I had no idea and I felt so ashamed that I couldn't bring this to someone. It was, it was my burden to bear. I dug myself in this hole. I'd, I'd let myself, I'd let this happen to myself and I didn't tell anyone about it. And so yeah. I continued to have mm. 
men and women too, um, sending me explicit things, strangers and people I knew. I got into, on social media, especially the idealization and the glorification of self-harm and eating disorders. Mm. And for a portion of my really formative years, I was in this culture where the shame that I was feeling from these messages I was receiving manifested in me glorifying self-harm and glorifying a certain body image that I thought I had to achieve through punishing myself by not eating or whatever it was. And that is something that I'm still dealing with the effects of today as a 20 year old. Um, and I don't actively struggle with it, but just that mindset that I was stuck in for so long because someone on social media told me that this is what you do when you feel this way. Right. What percent of kids in your peer group who had these devices do you think were involved in illicit types of things that your, their parents didn't know about? Conservatively, 100%. And uh, I just think it's such an eye-opener. And I know that the Lord has done some great works in your life. And I have watched God bring healing to so many of these different places. And I know you and Kristen have had some great conversations, interactions. And I'm so proud of, you know, how you have really been open to like confessing that and to seeing God bring healing to that. And I think that's such a big deal. But I appreciate you coming on too um, to share some of these pretty tender areas so that parents um, can have our eyes opened uh, to a lot of this. And uh, I've got more to say about this, but I'm gonna say it live. So I'm gonna turn it back over to myself in the future. Future self, take it away. Thank you so much, me from the past. Um, two haircuts ago, but uh, Anyway, I'm so thankful for Aubrey and her family and uh, their vulnerability. And I will say, I think her parents' generation, Gen X, was understandably taken blind by this. There were no parents who had raised kids in the mobile era prior to that. But my generation has no excuse. Like, we have got to get on this. And, um, you know, I think of Gen Z. I mean, obviously, Aubrey used some hyperbole there, saying 100%, but certainly in the high 90s. I mean, it's rare to find a kid um, who doesn't have secrets uh, if they have mobile devices that are, that are bad. And, you know, she shared with me how much she desperately wished she was caught. You know, she was afraid about getting in trouble, but she wanted to be free. And she talked about how, you know, the loss of innocence through these devices just normalized a level of behavior and a level of deception and dishonesty in her friend groups that was really destructive. And she's like, John, I was among the best in my class, among the most godly, among the most responsible from one of the best families. And it was just such a big, painful thing to bear. I love Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he'll not depart from it. You know, I think so many of our kids are simply not trained in this area. And training is more than telling. And that's what we do. We think, oh, I've had the sex talk with my kid. I'm good, you know. It's not telling. It's not saying don't look at porn and don't send nudes and don't go anywhere bad on the internet. That's telling. That's not training. Training is in-depth. Training is relational. Training is continual coaching. It's seeing things that they don't see and saying it, spraying it, wheeling it, dealing it, making them feel it. It's preparing for life scenarios. So important. I think a great app that every parent should use on any mobile device, and you know, just so you know, uh, you might be like, my kid doesn't have a phone. If they have a tablet, if they have uh, an iPod Touch, that's what Aubrey got into um, on all that stuff, and uh, it's, it's the same as a phone. You know, and, and a great app I think anybody needs to consider if your kids have that is Bark. And don't just get it, go through the wonky process of connecting it to every single different app that your kid has. Connect it to Instagram, connect it to TikTok, connect it to Snapchat. And it's wonky, it's irritating to do, but it's worth it. 
And uh, it'll allow you to see in real time everything that's being said and sent back and forth. It'll flag what it thinks are questionable conversations. And then take the time to activate parental controls, parents. Disable the app store. Disable app delete and app add opportunities for your kids without a passcode. Limit screen time. Be diligent about monitoring. And then here's the big one, and this is unfortunate. Bark doesn't work with Google Docs. And a lot of kids in public school today have Chromebooks. And uh, this is such a big deal because it's a common place to message back and forth, you know, create a, a fake account on there or whatever, your, your private illicit account um, that your parents don't have, and then just to comment back and forth on the collab docs. Um, but it's definitely something to be in conversation with your kids about. The inventors of smartphones didn't give their kids devices. You know why? Because they knew they were harmful and destructive to a young mind. As a kid, you know, our frontal cerebral cortexes are not developed. They say the teenagers are like people with a gas pedal and no brake pedal for their inhibitions. And that's a big problem when it comes to handing this power to a kid. I'd strongly encourage, encourage families to wait until at least eighth grade to give your kid any sort of mobile device that is theirs. And even then, only with lots of supervision and training. Don't let a kid bring a phone into their bedroom. Don't let a kid have a phone past eight o'clock. Like, it's so important. If we want to leave a legacy of faith, we've got to train our kids about sex God's way. I think this is so, so important. I think it's such a big deal. And, and parents, too, I would tell you this. Um, make a space for your kids to confess sin without losing your mind. Like, that's one of the things I appreciate about my dad so much. In my entire life, I turned 37 this month. I've never heard my dad yell at me, not once. And I'm so grateful. Like, he's disciplined me, like, very hard. But he never lost his mind with me. I always knew he was a safe place. He was a reasonable person. And if he did get mad, he'd say, look, John, I need to take a few minutes so that I don't kill you. I'll be back, you know? And I appreciated it. He processed things with me. Kids, I would encourage you, you know, your portal to freedom begins with confession. And I'd encourage you to go to your parents and share some hurt. I mean, I, hopefully I primed the pump a little bit for your parents to be open to receiving it. Parents, if your kid does confess after this, like, please, please, don't, don't lose your mind at them. Last area I want to talk about, this is a really big deal, is um, the area of faith. And uh, this is such a big deal. You know, for my parents... Um, they were not super concerned about us getting addicted to drugs or failing at life or getting divorced or getting kidnapped. Their, their primary concern, the worst thing that could happen to us was us not loving Jesus. They said, look, later is longer, eternity is longer, life is a mist. What we really, really want for our kids is for them to love Jesus. And they were so intentional. They were so intentional about training us to love God. They didn't just tell us to love God. They trained us. You know, I saw my parents in the Word of God every single day. My parents encouraged me, confronted me when I wasn't in the Word of God every day. We never missed church. And what I appreciate by that is, you know, um, where, where I was raised, it was Christians were ridiculed pretty heavily. But in church, I had a peer group of people that normalized a faith in Christ. We prayed together as a family before bed and before every meal. Sometimes I'd be like, why do we got to pray so long? I'm hangry. We... Um, uh, did devotionals on family vacations. My dad would lead devotionals and prayer time with us. We talked about Jesus all the time, and my parents actually lived out their faith in a real way. I knew that the Hills really practiced what they believed. The bigger thing was um, my dad trained us. He trained us in our faith. He would not tell us that God was real. He would show us how to understand that God was real. Trained us to see it. I remember looking at a sunset, and my dad would say, John, how do we know that God is real? How do we know? Well, because something doesn't come from nothing. Because intelligent design doesn't come from no intelligence. Because an artist, or because a painting has a painter. Uh, because a house has a builder. Because a design has a designer. And he would ask me sometimes, you know, I would go to my dad, I'd say, Dad, I, I just feel like God's kind of mean. You know, he doesn't seem like a very nice God. And uh, my dad would say, can your feelings change facts? 
And I'd say, well, no, my feelings can't change facts. And he'd say, okay, I think, do you like God is a dumb question. He'd say, the real question isn't, do you like God? The real question is, is God real? And who is he? Regardless of my feelings. And I just thought he was so right on that. I mean, that specific thought process has changed the way that I live my life. I remember going to the Grand Canyon and my dad talking to me about the beauty of God's creation and helping me see his hand in all of that and build a worldview that incorporated God. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Train our children to be the legacy that we want. Guys, friends, we have got to train our kids, train them to take responsibility. Young people, your life is up to you. It's yours. It's in your hands. Train our kids to honor God with their sexuality. I'm so grateful for parents who are intentional about this. When my brother came out to my parents as gay, they didn't condemn him. They loved him and they helped him learn to honor God with his sexuality. And train your kids to love and follow God with their faith. Some of you here might say it's too late, but I want you to know it's never too late. It's never too late. If you're not dead, then God's not done. Pursue a relationship with your kids. Start having conversations with your kids. Live like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Forgive, and here's a big one, parents. Don't give your power away to your children. Oh, it's so easy to let them get the best of you. You know, when you've got that adult kid who says those things and whatever, don't give your power away. Don't get mad. You love them. And I'll say this. Kids are their own people. You know, this is what's called wisdom literature in the Bible. This is not a guarantee. If you train up your kids in the way they should go, when they're old, they'll not depart from it. That's not a guarantee. That's wisdom. That's a probably. I have seen families do everything wrong and kids come out great. And I've seen families do everything right and kids rebel. There are no guarantees. I mean, I'm doing the best I can with my four kids. There are no guarantees that they'll turn out despite my focus and efforts. And I will tell you what, if they're not dead, then God's not done. Never stop parenting them. And remember, even if they love Jesus right now, continue to pray that they will have a sustained faith. I put a bonus point in here. You know, I said I had three points, but I actually have a fourth little bonus point, secret point in here. And if you don't have kids, this is where we really, really, really need your partnership. I'm asking you, I'm begging you for future generations. We need to be praying. We need to be praying. There's never been a time in American history where kids trying to follow Jesus and be Christians have faced more bigotry, hatred, and discrimination. This is a time in society, you know, it's always popular to stand up for the thing that society says is right. It's very unpopular to stand up for what society says is wrong. And today we have an American society that has become extremely hateful. And I look at the youngest generations and I'm telling you guys, we have to pray for them and partner with them. And I'm asking you, no matter where you're at, to begin praying for the next generations. It's our vision statement as a church. Praying diligently. Um, you know, I, as we close, definitely think there's a lot of takeaway from this. There's discussion questions on the QR code on the back of your blue cards that you can scan and participate in. But I thought, how can we end this legacy series? And, you know, the future generations are the future of our church. So I thought it might be appropriate to look at everybody who's 23 and younger and to pray for you guys. So if you're 23 and younger, would you stand to your feet just for a moment? 23 and younger. And uh, I love seeing our student leadership team in the front row. You guys are great. We got most of our varsity and junior varsity students here. But um, you guys, I know it's hard. I know it's a crazy world that we live in. And I want you to know you have what it takes to change the world. I know um, that sometimes things seem scary, but you have what it takes to make courageous and unpopular choices. God's hand is on you. And I believe that we're gonna see greater things done through you guys and in you guys than generations before you. And I think the great revival 
that can come can come through you guys. I want to read about how God used you to change the world. When I'm 80 years old and retired, I can't wait to see the pastors and church leaders that come from your generation. I can't wait to hear about the missionaries who reach the nations through you. I can't wait to hear about the healing relationships that happen because you guys chose not to take an offense and you chose not to march in madness, but to reach out in love and forgiveness. You know, God gave us grace when he could have given us justice. And I wanna encourage you to be people of grace instead of people who scream for justice too. Church, I'd like to ask you guys to pray with me for this next generation right now. Let's bow our heads and pray for them. God in heaven, I lift up this next generation to you. I ask that you would make them uh, people of your word people who seek and trust and submit to your authority. I ask that you give them a steadfast, unwavering faith. God, I thank you that you don't ask for blind faith, but informed faith. I ask that for each person who is standing in this room today, that you would give them an informed faith, rooted in truth, sustained by love and grace. God, I ask that you would use these people to bring a great revival to Northwest Indiana, Lord. I ask that we could see many thousands of people choose to follow you because of your testimony in their lives. And God, I ask that in their lives, we could see generation after generation choose to love you and follow you because of their steadfast, unwavering leadership and faith. Make them courageous and bold and brilliant. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen and amen. We're proud of you, next generation. I'd like to ask everybody to stand to their feet. We're gonna sing one last.